0: Psalm 125, just going to verse 1 and 2, and then we'll go back to Hebrews chapter 12. Sorry. Psalm 125, verses 1 and 2. I'm actually going to read this twice. It's just two verses, so we will hear it twice. Psalm 125, verses 1 and 2. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people. From this time forth, And forevermore, again, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Pray with me. God, open the eyes of your servants, that we might see your word and live to keep it. Open the eyes of the blind so that they might see the glorious beauty of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's find our way back to Hebrews 12. I'll give you just a second. And we're going to be... Focusing our attention this morning on 25, 26, and 27. Before we begin, it I think it would be helpful for us to be reminded of our context in Hebrews 12. If we are to be rightly dividing the word of truth, as we had spoke about uh, the, the recent last two Sundays during Sunday school, we must understand that a verse... Is a part of a paragraph. A paragraph is a part of a chapter. And a chapter is a part of a book. And the whole book is a part of the Bible. There is a context for everything that we read in scripture. So we see it as a whole. A whole chapter. A whole book. A whole letter. The whole Bible. And so I want to remind us of a few things in Hebrews um, before we begin. Number one. Hebrews... This letter, the sermon, whatever we want to call it, was written to a group of Christians. Now, it doesn't start like Paul's letters do to the church at whatever, but we can, um, we can see in what he says throughout the, the letter that he is definitely addressing a group of believers. We see positive statements made about their faith, some directly, some indirectly, and some also in the warnings that he's given them. Here's a few of them, just so you, you, you catch the way I'm um, going here. He says that these few things, so that you do not drift away from it, that being the words of Christ, implying that they have arrived to it, right? He says to them, and we are his house, that being God's house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Very much a a statement that would be to believers. And we have come to share in Christ. Yeah? We have come to share in Christ. That is definitely an affirmation of their faith. But he says, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He says this, at the end of a warning passage, yet in your case, beloved... We feel sure about better things, things that belong to salvation. Later, he says, let us hold fast the, comp- the confession of our hope without wavering. No one has hope apart from Christ. And the last, he says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve the soul. So there are many... Many indirect and uh, direct statements showing that the author of Hebrews suspects that his audience is Christian, that they have faith in Christ. And a lot of times that affirmation comes with also the command or the encouragement, the exhortation to hold fast, to continue in their faith, to remain to endure. This is a word I want to I I use here. They are called to persevere. Okay? They're called to continue in their faith in Christ for how long? <clears throat> to the end. They're called to persevere. But another theme in Hebrews, it sort of runs parallel to, be, to, to the saints persevering, that is that God preserves the saints. So they're called to persevere, but they're also reminded that they are preserved by God. Those who are truly gods are held firm and fast by Him. You especially see that in chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. And if you if you study those chapters, 7, 8, 9, and 10, there are two glaring things that you will come away with when it comes to the preserving Work of God through Christ and the Spirit. And number one. It's that the blood of Christ. Is eternally effective. For those who have faith. The blood of Christ. Is eternally effective. For those who have faith. That would be past. Present and future. Those who had faith in the past. Say David. Those of us who have faith now. And any who have faith in the future. The blood of Christ as it says in 9.12, has secured, secured, right? That's a solid word, an eternal redemption. Not a drop of the shed blood of Christ is in vain. It is eternally effective. Number two, not only did He shed His blood for all who would believe, or as Ephesians 5 would say, that He gave Himself up for the church, as seen in his death, not only does he has he died for us, but yet he still lives for us now. He died for us, and he lives for the church now. He lives to intercede for them. He is the high priest of the church. One who is high priest forever, because why? He no longer can die. He had died, rose from the dead, been glorified, and now he lives and remains forever. And do you know what he's doing? standing before the throne of God on our behalf as intercessor. And so the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, he can save to the uttermost. Okay? The uttermost. So the blood of Christ and the intercessory, the mediation of Christ, shows us that God preserves those who are truly in Christ. Hebrews tells you, To hold fast. Hebrews also tells you, God is holding fast to you. Okay? Now, what we see... That is a real good explanation of the end of chapter 12 and the warning that we are looking at. We introduced ourselves to the warning last week, but we're going to conclude it this week, uh, this warning passage... And we're only going to look at verse 25, 26, and 27. Three verses, three major headings. Okay, if, you're, if you want to write the headings down, here they are. Number one, a somber warning. Number two, the savage judgment. And number three, the sacred remains. So let's read verse 25. The somber warning. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Okay, who's speaking? Who, is, who has spoken? Now, if you're a student of Hebrews or if you remember what we talked about before, uh, you hear this and it might be stirred up in your mind, chapter 1. Right? What does the writer say in chapter 1? Long ago, at many times, verse 1, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, who is speaking Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ. Now, notice the warning do not refuse him who is speaking. And I remember, if you remember correctly, last week, That idea of refusing is like sticking your fingers in your ear while he's talking to you. Kids, don't ever do that when your parents are talking to you. Always listen. Do not stop listening to him who is speaking. In chapter 2 of Hebrews, we already have got a taste of this warning. Look at verse 1 in chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention... To what we have heard, lest we drift away. So, again, similar. Listen to what is being said. Verse 2. For since the message declared by angels, that would be a reference to the old covenant, provided to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution payment for... uh, Transgression. Verse 3. Again, we're going to see similar language to verse to chapter 12. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Look back at chapter 12, verse 25. So close. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape, talking about, again, the old covenant, Israel, Mount Sinai, which we'll... Come back to if they did not escape when they refused and plugged their ears. If they refused, who warned them on earth from Mount Sinai, much less will we escape if we reject him. And that is the image of turning our backs to him who warns from heaven. Sorry, could you say that again? Siri thought I was talking to her. Um. So it's safe to say here that the words that are being spoken to some degree are words of a caution regarding danger. Danger. Sort of like danger, Will Robinson, right? Every time every time Will was getting into danger. Robot went to him and said, danger, Will Robinson. And he he needed to do what? What did Will need to do? Listen. So, him who is speaking, Jesus the Son, is saying, danger. If you neglect these words, you cannot escape. Now, this might also stir up in you some words of Jesus from Matthew 7 on the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he said on the Sermon on the Mount. The words of Christ. Everyone who hears these words of mine... What is he doing? He's speaking. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Well, that doesn't sound too bad. Sounds like having a house on the beach, right? What's so bad about that? I would love to escape to the beach but we know that he continues. He's like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Remember, we're, we're thinking about escaping. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. It's words of warning of danger to escape it now you think about this for a minute. Now, see if I can explain this the way it was in my mind. Jesus in Matthew 7 is warning his audience at the Sermon on the Mount. What is he warning them of? To listen to his words. He speaks words of warning and says, listen to to my words, and do them. So here's what I just want you to understand today. The major point to see in 1225 is listen to Jesus and do what He says. Not just come and listen to Him, but listen to Him and do what He says. Never stop, never assume, never be content that you've listened enough and therefore obeyed enough it's not enough to listen to him and say, I believe and I'm saved and I'm redeemed one time. But here's what here's the point of Hebrews twelve twenty five and into this warning passage. You must not stop listening to the shepherd. What happens when a sheep does not hear the shepherd's voice? It's in a world of trouble. Potential death, not led to pasture, not led to water, not protected from the wolves. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep know me. They come to me and they continue to follow me. Always led by the shepherd's voice. Always obeying the shepherd's voice. And to do so, to not do so, would be life-threatening. So, just to wrap up this first point, the somber warning, I want to, you might be asking, well, how do I listen to him? What does the voice of the shepherd of the sheep sound like? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take notes. You ready? Step one, open your Bible. Step two, read it. Step three, pray that the Lord would open your ears to hear his voice. All scripture is breathed out by God. We talked about this last Sunday, last Sunday at Sunday school. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. If you want, your, if you want to live your life right, pleasing to God in Christ Jesus, you must Hear and listen to the words of the Lord and the scripture and obey them. And they will train you. They will guide you. They will equip you. They will teach you. And after you read and pray, it's okay to put it to memory. Because you know what God told Joseph? God told Joseph, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. But you shall meditate on, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. So, what is the somber warning of Jesus? If you neglect my word, you will not escape what is to come, Christian or non Christian. Remember who the audience is, it's a group of Christians. If you neglect my word, you will not escape what is to come. Spoiler alert, what is to come? Judgment. Judgment. Um, One quick little side here before we move on to point two. We do not worship the Bible. Okay. We do not idolize the Bible. We do not think that it will save us, that this book will save us. We worship the God of the Bible. Okay. We, we exalt him who gave us his word, who revealed himself to us through his word. And we know that God saves us through his word, which became flesh and dwelt among us, his son. And he came and lived a righteous life, one that, the only type of life that can please God. He died the death we deserve uh, because why? The wages of sin is death. Yet he bore our sins upon the tree. He became sin who knew no sin. And after his death, he rose from the grave and and rose from the dead, ascended to heaven. But he has not left us nor forsaken us, for he has given us his word and his spirit to guide us through his word. We do not worship the word, but we worship him who gives us his word. Just like you love everything your spouse says. You hang on every word of your first love because you love them. Right? Your love for your uh, spouse is what causes you to love every word. And so, men, you love your wives, listen to your spouse. I got one chuckle over here. Dan, that's. We do not worship the book, but we worship Jesus Christ, the word of God. We love him and we love every word he's ever spoken. You understand that? Every word he's ever spoken. Okay, so then we've got to ask the question, okay, and we've sort of answered it already. What are we to escape? What are, what? are What's happening when the rains fall and the floods came and the winds blow and beat against the house? What is this great fall? We'll point to verse... 26 and 27, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, 25, 26 and 27, it's kind of the whole thing here, is the savage judgment of God. And yes, I, I chose that word particularly, um, I, I chose savage because it starts with an S like somber and sacred, but I think a more fitting word is the violent judgment of God. God. Now I want to show you why the judgment of God is violent in this in this section in verse 26 and 27. But we must understand that God has appointed a, a time for judgment. We all know we've we've seen it in Hebrews. Um, and just as it it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, Christ came into the world with that very understanding. The very reality that he was coming into a world that would be judged. A world that loves darkness rather than light. Always has and always will. And we were a part of that world. They loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. And even their good deeds they attempted were but a filthy rags. So Jesus comes into this world, this dark world, already condemned... Because they love the darkness rather than the light. And he comes in speaking, preaching about the judgment that is near. He comes declaring a message that says, Hey everyone, the kingdom of God is near. It is at hand. And from that moment of his ministry, the warning began. And the warning went like this. Repent. Turn from your sin. Matthew 4. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And then in Luke 2, do you know what he says to a group of people? If you don't repent, you will all perish. Because judgment is coming. Jesus' message was for some judgment... And for others, actually hope. And earlier I focused on the negative aspect of Jesus' little parable about the building the house on the sand. I just gave you the negative aspect. For for those who would hear and believe, that parable had a positive side to it as well. He said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And guess what comes? The rain. The floods. And the winds. And they will beat upon the house. Even of him who hears the words of Jesus and does them. But the house does not fall. Because the house is found on Christ. The way out of judgment, the way to avoid this catastrophic wrath that is to come upon this earth that will beat against every single one of you here. Matthew 7, the rains, the floods and the wind are the judgment of God coming towards every person who has ever lived and you will either fall or stand depending on if you are on The soil, the sand of the world, or if you are on the rock of Christ, building your house on his words. Look at verse 26. To help us understand the violence of this judgment. The violence of this judgment. From God as he comes to this fallen world. Verse 26. At this time his voice shook the earth. But now he promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth. But also the heavens. So he begins by going back to his uh, comparison of Sinai and Zion. Remember that last week? He goes back to that story of the Israelites at, at Sinai. And so he's speaking about that instance In verse 26, at that time when Israel was before Sinai and God had descended upon Sinai, at that time, his voice shook the earth. What shook the earth? His voice. All right. What happened on Sinai, as we read in Exodus 19 last week, as God descended upon the mountain, spoke his law into existence, not only was there thunder... Fire, smoke, the Israelites were terrified, but what else happened? The mountain itself quaked at the word of God. At that time, his voice shook the earth. God had come to Sinai, and the earth trembled. But look what's promised in 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, check it, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Keep going a little bit. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. So let's let's stop here for a second. So he adds that, okay, he's going to shake the earth again. But when he shakes the earth again, he will also shake the heavens. What does he mean? What's he mean when he says he's not just going to shake the earth, but he's also going to shake the earth and the heavens? Well, sometimes if you just read a little bit more, you sort of get help in what... Uh, the Bible is trying to explain to you. Sometimes there's things that are in there um, that if you understand how like the Hebrews wrote their words, you can pick up on some things. So here's, here's two things that we can understand out of verse 26 and 27 when he says, I'm not just going to shake the earth again, but I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. Number one, here's, here's something you can pick up. Earth and the heavens is simply to signify... Everything. Think about it. What did God make in Genesis 1-1? The heavens and the earth. He made everything. And it's and he says it. Moses writes it down. In the beginning God made the heavens and the earth. God made all things. So in Hebrew writing, when you see a use of things like uh, those those two types of things, like heaven and earth. He's, he's just lumping all things together. But in verse 27, the second thing that we can pick up on this, he unfolds the words to show us his meaning. Look how he sort of steps this out. So yet once more he'll shake not only the earth but also the heavens. Verse 27, this phrase, oh, he's, he's going to give us a better understanding. This phrase, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens indicates the removal of things that are shaken okay but it gives us a little bit more that is things that have been made what's been made all things so what's going all things This is the indication of the end of the world as we know it. This is the indication of the end of time, the final day, the day of the Lord, judgment day. That is what is being spoken of here. And as God descended on Sinai, so will he again descend to the earth this time. The God-man, Jesus the Christ. He will descend upon the earth, coming to judge the living and the dead. The saints of God, as they see this, they will marvel at His coming and worship Him. But all others will cry out in horror, asking the mountains and the hills to fall on them, to hide them from the judgment of Him who is coming. The savageness, the violence that takes place, can all be seen in this small little phrase, "being shook or shaken." It's the same violence that Jesus tries to per, uh, per, uh, tries to um, show us when he talks about heavy rains and floods and harsh winds violently beating on houses and bringing them to the crumble of the ground. The judgment of God will shake. All things that are made shake, to rock, to and fro, to violently agitate, to throw into a terror. Now that imagery, those words, ought to remind you of Revelation. Look at chapter 6 of Revelation. And notice the similar language. Revelation chapter 6 beginning in verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig trees shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale that would be the wind. The sky vanished like a scroll. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island weren't just shaken, but were removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling that the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now look at chapter 16. Now if you're unfamiliar with Revelation, there are... um, a few different ways to approach the, the this book. <coughs> one I <coughs> pardon me. <coughs> the way that I see the the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls that are listed in revelation aren't separate events, but are one event all seen from different perspectives look at verse chapter 16 <coughs> <coughs> verse 17 tickle it ain't going away <coughs> ah, okay. the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and the loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying it is done check the language here and there were flashes of lightning rumbling peals of thunder and an earthquake a great earthquake such as there had never been seen since man was on the earth Not even since Mount Sinai. So great was the earthquake. The great city, Jerusalem, was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plagues of the hail because the plagues were so severe. What violence the wrath of God and judgment upon this world. And it is one that cannot be wished away. The writer of Hebrews... Has actually already mentioned this. It's very interesting. Go back to Hebrews chapter 1. If you notice, this is our second time going back to Hebrews chapter 1. Do you understand why? Because the writer of Hebrews is finishing his argument. He's done. And you're thinking, okay, good, we're getting close to the end of Hebrews. And you're right. He is finishing his argument. Hebrews 1 verse 8. But of the son, he says, so God's the father speaking of his son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of um, uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And pay close attention. You. You. Speaking of the sun, Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. All creation there, right? Verse 11, they will perish. But what? You remain. And they will all wear out like garments. Like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Only He remains. How did Hebrew? Or how did Revelation six end? Let me remind you: Who can stand on that day? So now we get to the final point. The sacred remains. Back to 12. Who remains? Or we should say, who will not be shaken? Hebrews 1 told you. Who? Jesus. Only Jesus can withstand the judgment of the law of God. Christ alone, the God-man, will stand on Mount Zion unshaken. He will stand in His own righteousness, the eternal law keeper. For He is the only one that cannot be shook. Now, all of this, who can, who can stand, who will not be shaken, started to... Into my mind, another passage from Revelation, Revelation chapter 5. You can turn there if you want, but I'm just going to mainly paraphrase it. And we're we're almost done here. John, who is on the island of Patmos, he is is in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he is caught up in a vision. And in chapter 5, it says that in this vision, he beholds the door standing open into heaven. And when John is taken up in this vision and he's taken up to look into heaven, he's watching at what's going on. And then there's this scroll that was brought forth. And on this scroll are seven seals. And if you read ahead, and I think I've already said it, you understand that these seals represent the wrath of God in judgment upon the wickedness of this world. But as the scroll comes forth with these seven seals, the angels proclaim, one angel proclaims with a loud voice, asking this question Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? He's saying, Who is it that is worthy to judge God's creatures, worthy of bringing a just condemnation upon them? John, who's there, who's witnessing this in his vision, what does he not do? He does not step forth and say, "It is I. I am worthy to do this." No, what does he say? Well, before he even speaks or responds, it said, "And in no and no one in heaven, or on earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to or to look into it. No one." John or any human being was able to step forward and say, this is mine. I am worthy of such honor. But then, and then, but no, but John says, it says that John began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look at it. And at, at once one of the elders said to him, said to John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Who is worthy? Who can stand? Who remains? It is the lamb slain. And then they sing of a new song in verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people of God from every tribe, language, language, and people and nations, and you have been, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and mighty and might. How long? Forever and ever, forever. Christ remains. Forever Christ stands. Forever Christ will reign on Mount Zion. The holy city. The new Jerusalem. And this is the message that God is keeping you. Let me me ask you something. When it comes to the sacred remains. After the wrath and judgment of God comes forth. If the head remains, will not the body be there as well? You understand? If the head remains, Jesus Christ, will not his body stand there with him? We've got one more passage in Revelation, chapter 14. This is the message of preserving, not persevering, but of God keeping us. Not because of who we are, but because we are found in the body of the head. The only one who can remain. The only one who will not be shaken. Revelation 14 verse 1. Then I looked, John looked, and behold, where? On Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him a hundred and forty four thousand who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads and i heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of the loud thunder a voice the voice i heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps and they were singing a new song Before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It was these who had not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who followed the lamb wherever he goes. They have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found. For they were blameless. Now you might be thinking, um, I, I don't know about that one, Luke. I always thought the 144,000 were uh, were 140,000 uh, Jewish men who were virgins. I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I don't I mean I don't want to go into too much detail, but you have to understand. Twelve is the number of completion, and twelve times twelve times a thousand gets you hundred and forty-four thousand. And what does this hundred and forty-four thousand represent? Those who have been redeemed on the earth. Also in, in chapter seven, those whose clothes were white because they had been washed by the lamb. They were the body because they were attached to the head. As Christ stands on Mount Zion... So we, the church, will stand with Him because we will stand in Him. We have been brought into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Here is the encouragement. You are brought been brought into a kingdom that cannot be shaken because the King cannot be shaken. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And with Him, we will remain Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Now, tonight I want us to look at four takeaways because of this reality. I'm going to give them to you now. We're going to come back tonight and talk about them. The only people who remain are those who are eager and love His appearing. Number two. The only people who will remain, who will stand, are those who are heavenly minded, not seeking to live for the things that will be shaken. Things that will not remain. The only people who will remain, the only people who will not be shaken, are those who are pursuing the holiness of God in their lives. Those who share in the holiness of God with which out it they cannot see the kingdom. And number four, the only people who will remain are those who, back in Hebrews 12 verse 28, we'll talk about this next week, are those who in their gratitude offer to God acceptable worship and reverence and awe. So... If you look at the end of chapter 12, there's one final sentence, and we'll talk more about this next week. But I want to introduce it tonight, uh, today. One last little phrase at the end of chapter 12. For our God is a consuming fire. Whew. Everything that is not heavenly will be burnt up in the coming judgment. Nothing made will Remain. Nothing made will remain. So I want to remind you, everyone, what are you made of? The dust of the earth. So don't think in your very existence as dust, that when the judgment of God comes to burn up all things that have been made, that you will be able to stand. If you are not found united to the head that is Christ on the day of the Lord, you will be consumed by the fiery wrath of God. You will not be able to stand, and no excuse can be given. For He will cover your mouth, He will shut you up, and there will be nothing that you can say to change His mind, for you have been a rebel to His law and have not honored Him as your Creator." but understand this you can be remade into something different today and while still in your body of death you could be remade not by perishable seed but imperishable seed and be part a part of the body of the body of Christ through faith but you must cry out to him for mercy as a t- tax collector you must cling to him as one who has nothing else to cling to you must b- let him bring you out of the dark the kingdom of darkness that will be shook and destroyed come to him by faith and be made new and finally christian i want to tell you that god is a consuming fire let us not be found holding on to, idolizing, loving the things he will come to burn up. Take all that you carry that is not Christ, your sin, your idols, your hatred, your, your uh, selfishness, and throw it on the altar. And let the love of God's grace consume that which we do not need. Give him your unbelief this morning and let it be burnt up on the altar. Give him your anxiousness this morning and let it be burnt up. Give him that sin you have told no one about, that you are hiding. Give it all to him, and by fire, the love, by the love of him and the heat of his passion for his children, he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. As we close this morning, we're going to have our meal. But I want you to understand I am here and to speak to anyone. And I'll be sitting in the back while everyone goes to eat. And if you want to speak to me about any of this, you come to me and let's talk. Pray with me. Father, might we understand the violence of your judgment and know that it is just, it is right. But God, more so than that, show us the beauty, the joy, and the hope that we have And being united to Him who will remain and stand forever. Your Son. May all the things that carry us into this world. Be put upon your altar and be burnt up. Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Give faith to those who are faithless. Grant repentance to those who love their sin. Build your church. And we declare with you that the gates of hell will not prevail. But will crumble at your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.